morning and welcome to Article 23, the podcast all about making work work. I'm Rhonda Brighton Hall, CEO of MOI, making work absolutely human. And as I strap into the driver's seat for this week's podcast, <laughs> did you see what I did there? I did. <laughs> I want to welcome Suzanne Kravilovich, my co-driver for this week's episode. Hi, welcome. Rhonda. How are you? And we want to talk about... We want to talk about commuting. We want to talk about commuting. And the first question is, did you see what I did there? And you did. So that's really, that's very well aligned. Okay, that good. Great. I was okay. in the driver's seat. <laughs> anyway, it's a bit of a dead joke, really. It is. Um, anyway, so <laughs> let's get back to the topic. Talk okay. about community. Well, we've been back in the office for a few weeks now. Yep. And we were recently talking about our commute to work and how long it can take. Yep. And we were wondering how long does it take to, for people to spend, you know, how long do people spend commuting around the world? Yep. So we had a look. So what I found out, the top 10 countries, sorry, the top five countries with the worst commutes in the world, and these are averages, and they range from one hour and 20 minutes to one hour and 37 minutes yep. for their commute. Yeah. Uh, Neither of those numbers are good. No. <laughs> uh, Kenya, Hong Kong, India, United Arab Emirates, and Israel, which I found quite surprising that they were the longest commutes. Yes. Um, but I guess, you know, it depends on the, not just traffic, but also infrastructure. Yes. Um, and then, so I had a look at some of the big cities, which I probably expected to be in that list. Um, and I found Paris is sitting at about 92 minutes. So it's not far off. Uh, London, 81 minutes. New York, 53 minutes. And here in Sydney, the average commute time is 71 minutes a day. So we're not doing too badly. Yeah. Unless but, it rains. Yeah, unless it's raining, then no one else can drive anymore. That's right. But it's always all the other people who can't drive because you and I can drive in the rain. Like we lived in cities that rain a lot. Yeah. But oh my goodness, we're bad in the rain. But okay, so we're 71, so we're not doing too badly. But it is one of those things that you just keep hearing it during this debate is um, at the moment in these current times, as they're now calling, because we don't want to say the word unprecedented <laughs> or anything close to it. That's right. Um, we do complain about the commute. We do. But um, I think there's, there's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think the conversation that we had this week and you were talking about the value of the commute is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, let's just talk to the people who talk about urban sprawls and environmentalists and things like this, because there's really, really interesting work coming through about this, because it's the context in which we then place our working life. And um, the expression is machete's constant. Yes. And it's a phenomenon from 1994, but it's still true today. And we can see from those numbers you just gave, it's actually not far off. Yep. Now, he's an Italian physicist, Cesar Machetti. Yep. Awesome name. And he showed that around the world, villages, cities, everywhere, people, people typically spend an hour commuting to work. And even as trains get faster, infrastructure gets faster, the cities get more clogged and you go slow again. Cars get faster, we put more of them on the road. Yes. So it doesn't really matter what you do. Bigger roads, more people hop on it. Whatever you do, you'll always end up with about an hour or more to commute. But he does say somewhere in all the stuff that he's written is that uh, people prefer anything less than 30 minutes. And after that, it's a bit of a chore. So we're long past those sort of numbers. We're we sort are. of heading past the hour as well. So... What's the forecast for that is something that you and I have been thinking about, looking at, and frankly, zero good news. That's like right. Absolutely no good news there. Um, so even in all the cities and all the things we're doing, and every time we build a new road, we have picketing and fighting about where the road should go. The reality is it doesn't really matter where we put it because within a couple of years, we'll all be back up the road and it'll be more clogged and we'll be going just as slow as we were at the moment. So 
So we can talk about the commute, should we commute, and should we all go into a city centre, should we go to the suburbs? There's lots of really good thinkers about that, particularly in like urban architects and things like that. And yes. we, that's a whole topic for another day because we love that topic. But right now we want to say, okay, while those very clever people are working out how we should commute, yes, what should we do with that commute? Exactly. So I actually wrote an article this week um, talking about a thing called the third space. A very good article. I like <laughs> Thank it very you. much. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, doing a bit of research on it. And this was the title of a book written by a man called Dr. Adam Fraser way back in 2012. And the idea is a bit about creating a space between two activities where you can reflect and refocus and prepare yourself for the next thing. So in the book, they looked at um, things that made um, uh, performance greater. Yep. And they looked at that in a few different contexts, like between the time between uh, points in uh, a tennis game, yep. where two athletes are sort of similar in physical attributes, but yep. one's a bit performing better than the other. Yep. And they found that it's the time between the points, what they did between the points that was important. So, and, we, and we do have a tennis fanatic in the MIT. We do. James Hancock out of Philadelphia to name one. So it was very interesting that tennis was one of the examples. But it's true, isn't it? That moment when you see people go, I've finished that, I'm about to do something else. What's that bit in the middle where I refocus and reset? And you can see all kinds of rituals that take place amongst some of the elite tennis players yep. that they go through in between yep. points. Um, and it, there are other, there were other contexts they looked at, like um, in between sales calls. So if you've just had an unsuccessful sales call, how do you refocus for the next one uh, so that you're optimistic and enthusiastic for the next yep. call rather than it beating you down? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then the other context is the time between work and home. Yeah. And they actually did some research and showed that people who use that time have some time between work and home and use it effectively to refocus um, had a an actual measurable improvement in the mood in their home, which was... But you know it too, don't you? You know it. Like, I know if someone says to me, can I call you in the car mm. in the morning? Mm -hmm. And I'm an early bird, so I'm like, sure. I'm yep. happy to talk to you all the way to work. I've usually just had breakfast with me and a couple of golden retrievers and that's <laughs> yes. it. And so I'm really happy to talk on the way here and I get to work, I'm full of energy. But on the way home, when someone says, can I talk to you in the car? I'm like, oh, oh, that's the time for listening to 1980s power ballads <laughs> as it was yesterday. We were talking about that before. But, um, there's a time that I like to switch off because I know that when I walk into my house, I see my daughters and Michael and, and we start to talk about something other than work. Yes. I want to be in a great space to do that. So I, I love that commute home and I'm really quite annoyed if someone interrupts it and wants to chat about work because I've left it. Exactly. And it's really important now that we're all working from home yeah. that we do something to create that space between work and home because, you know, if we're just moving from one room to another or, as in my case, I was moving from the dining room table to my lounge yeah. um, in the same room, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't do it for you, right? It doesn't no. um, switch your mind off and switch your mind back to, oh, I'm home now and now I'm going to have a conversation with my husband. And, and, yeah. And, uh, and all those lovely multi-dimensional parts to your relationship where you don't know what the person's been doing all day because they've been out on this adventure and yes. you've, been on, you've been on your own adventure and you share adventures. Exactly. Or you talk about another adventure outside. <laughs> um, 
and all of a sudden you're like, well, we just been on either side of the table and I saw you and I heard everything you said and it's a bit dull. That's right. Yeah. So you need to get yourself, um, create something else. So go for a walk around the block or do some meditation if that's your thing. Yep. Or I, I know um, my husband sits down and writes some notes at the end of the day and some dot points about what he's going to do tomorrow. Yep. And that's how he closes off his mind on the work day because he ends. knows. It, it my ends. my ready for tomorrow, end of day, go and think about something else. That's right. Tell Suzanne about my adventure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, it's, I think it's, when I read your article, and I, I just thought it's such a beautiful idea to take this idea where whatever's happening to create a third space between this event and the next event you've got planned and what you do with it. And sales calls a great example. The commute's another great example. But it's equally true of anything. If you go into a particularly tough meeting or whatever it happens to be, you want a space after it, not That's just right. jam 18 in a day, whether there's Zoom or not, doesn't really matter. Yes. But actually have the space to go reflect, think about something else, get my head back in the game so I can give my best to the next one and the next group of people as opposed to assuming you're one of these magical people who could just roll off. That's right. And it's a great um, idea, uh, people who, could, who don't have um, meetings any longer than 45 minutes, for example. Yeah. Because it, it always gives you then 15 minutes be between meetings. Yeah. So that's a very sensible gives you a third space. It gives you a third space. So <laughs> what about, I have to throw this in, yes. people who commute on planes. The distance between Sydney and Melbourne is the busiest flight path in the world. These are the people who live in one city and work in another. And that in itself is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> It is a bit amazing because people say, oh, look, it's only a 45-minute flight in the morning and now flight in the afternoon yeah. or whatever it is. But that's only if they actually live at the terminal. That's right. <laughs> First, like you've got to get to the airport. You have to get to the airport and you've got to get there half an hour early unless you're really famous. Yes. So then you're talking about a commute, so that's half an hour. Then you've got an hour sitting there drinking Qantas cat. <laughs> or having toasted cheese Toasted cheese which is always lovely. <laughs> And we can tell you how to make them because we make a lot. And then you go from that and then you hop on a plane and then the 45 minutes starts. And then That's you have right. to get off the other end and commute to wherever you go because you're not going to work in the terminal when you get there. So That's right. It is a very, very long way to go. It's quite exhausting. But um, as a person who spent a large part of my life on long-haul flying, um, I've been fascinated by the research that's come through that says that soaring, and this is the facts of it, mm -hmm. 35,000 feet or mm -hmm. 10Ks above the ground in a sealed plane, i.e. metal tube, yes. can do strange things to your mind. And yeah. it can alter your mood, change how your senses work, and even make you your skin itchy and things like that. You know, Which is dehydration yeah. and what have you. Amazing. So the flying altitude, the reduced air pressure leads to an element of hypoxia, meaning less, less oxygen to your brain. Right. And this can lead to a decrease in cognitive performance and reasoning. Although, uh, usually there's only a mild effect in the pressure of the cabin, of course, because they don't want to make people really stupid. But it's... Um, it is noticeable in very young people and very older people that that's what's happening to them. Yes. And so I just wanted to flag that. Now, I know I'm going to get a bunch of calls from my friends who fly long haul all the time. Um, and I'm sorry to let you know, but it's actually quite true. So, but if you are doing that by plane and you're commuting and by flying between cities quite regularly, um, maybe our suggestion is something like work really hard and really fast because your brain's deteriorating. How <laughs> much time left? It is like one of those things that I think our rethink at the moment about the way we work and how we commute will actually be incredibly valuable because I think we'll start to think, do we really need to do that to the planet or our own brains um, by flying it to the other side of the world all the time other than you know going on a holiday and some good things that we want to get out of it. Absolutely. And it all adds up to having a negative impact on your health and well-being. 
Yes. And it does remind us in 2018 when Jeff Pfeffer came out to Australia and he, he was releasing his book then, Dying for Paycheck, which we have worked with and quoted many times since then, yes. about the negative impacts of our way of life, our way of managing people, our way of working on our health and on our organisational performance as a consequence. And he and his friends trawled through an absolute mountain of research and conclusively found um, through 113 published articles plus their own research, and that included six doctorates, which was pretty amazing, wow. that there was good evidence that there was a very real relation to health and productivity. Yes. And so when we make decisions on how should you work, how should you commute, how should we create space between things, all of those things, what we're talking about is well-being. And when we're talking about well-being, we're talking about our performance. And when we're talking about our performance, then we're talking about our performance collectively, and that is an organisation. So... I just think it's such a great way to think about how we make better decisions in that space. It is. And, you know, we've had, we've had this increased focus on health and wellbeing at this time. Yep. And it, it's a really important focus all the time in, yep. in terms of that productivity. Um, I saw a great quote related to the, the dying for a paycheck um, around commuting, which was dying to get to work or getting to work to die. <laughs> It's a big win. <laughs> Very good. But it did make me smile. And I'm not sure what that says about my sense of humor. It says a lot, and we'll talk about it later. It's very concerning. But I think it's true. It is about making work a really important part of your life that you can enjoy. Yep. Um, and saying something about your impact on your own health, understanding that and working with that. And because we've been talking about the impact of work and specifically the negative impact of work, I'd like to add another great quote from Pfeffer, and I am a bit of a, a fangirl on that one. Right. But he also said, and this is to the point of all this discussion about how fantastic gig economies and gig jobs are, and I get the freedom of them and I get that, but he also made a quote, he'd done some really good study. If you haven't read it, read it. He said, one study of relatively high-paid contractors in Silicon Valley, so we're talking about the top end of the gig economy, found that free agents don't really feel free because of the need. They always have to be searching for the next gig and mm -hmm. therefore frequently took less leisure time than regular employee. And we see that with the tech companies they work with is, we yes, do. they're working gig and they're all talking about the freedom and joys of it all, but they have very little leisure time and very little, to go back to that circle, very little third space mm -hmm. where they stop working, think about something completely different mm -hmm. and then work again. They tend just to work through the night or whatever it happens with no boundaries. And so... Even that sort of piece of it, the way we design work, security and the calmness that we know it's coming to us is something that really matters. It's not just a legal question, but a deeply human one. And, and it needs lots of thinking about humanity as we think about the best ways forward, not just a, what is productive, but what is actually good for us. Um, if we could design work, you know, like, I don't know, design it for humans, maybe. <laughs> I knew <laughs> that. Just a crazy <laughs> idea. Um, so... Clearly, the way we work, the way we commute to and from work, the way we get to work and get home has a huge impact on us. And this moment is another opportunity to rethink that piece of it. And I think your article is a real beautiful addition to that thinking about how it might work. Um, so thank you, Suzanne, for that. Um, so let's go on that note. Okay. Look at better ways to organise work, to think about work, to design work, and to design getting to and from work and make the most of your commute, make it better, enjoy it. 1980s power ballads are always good for me. That's right. Uh, or punk music. <laughs> and um, over to you, big moi from us. See you next week. Big moi for me as well. <laughs>